0: morning we're going to be in John chapter 10 starting with verse 22 and the last time two Sundays ago we covered the first part of John 10 and Jesus per- portrays himself as the good shepherd and the sheep hear his voice and today we're going to look at the promises that the good shepherd offers now He offered these promises, there's going to be some powerful ones today that we can really lay hold of. We're going through a difficult uh, difficult time, we can really hold them in our hearts, but you have to understand that these promises are backed by something. You know, if you take a lot of money and you put it in a bank, and you're not afraid to put your money in your bank. Why? Because there's a little sign outside that says insured by the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. You putting your money in the bank and a bank robber comes or the bank goes under, then what happens is you get your money back by the federal government. Well, these promises are far better than putting your money in a bank account because we know that at any point in time we could lose our lives and then we stand before God and we step into eternity. Well, Jesus says, I have some pretty neat promises here and we're going to lay them out. And he says, it's backed by something as well. The fact that he lays out his deity, he lays out who he is being the son of God, being God. So a mere man, what could I offer you? A few things, not a whole lot. Could I offer you secret service protection every day? Not really, because I don't know anybody there. So I could make claims all I want, but the truth is it's got to be backed by something, and we'll, we'll look at what Jesus says. So starting in verse 22, it says, Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, The Feast of the Dedication, or what we would know as Hanukkah. This is celebrated in the winter. We know at this point in Christ's ministry that he's only a few months from the crucifixion. And what is Hanukkah? Well, we know that the Syrian Antiochus Epiphanes, Alexander the Great, uh, the 4th century BC, he died at a very young age, in his 30s, and he left four generals, you know, He didn't have any kids that were taken over the throne. And the four generals broke up the Greek world, or the, the, the Middle Eastern world, but the Greek-dominated world, into four sections. So this guy, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, has one of those sections. He comes in, he's anti-Semitic. He takes over the temple area. He desecrates the temple by slaughtering a pig, an unclean animal, in the temple and erects a statue to Zeus. All right? So it's completely profaning this temple. And this happened uh, the second century B.C. Right around 164 B.C., the Jews regained control over the temple under Judas Maccabeus, or Judah the Hammer. And under his leadership, the Jews retook the temple, reclaimed it, rededicated it, cleaned it out, removed all the profane things from it, but they only had oil to last for one day. And the miracle of Hanukkah is that the oil lasted for eight days instead of one, enough to, for them to press more olives and get more uh, oil in there. But this is really fascinating because there's a little cultural lesson too. When you drive by in, in the winter months and you see the, the, the menorahs, there's, five, or there's nine um, you know, branches to them. Uh, that would signify the one that lights the other eight and the eight days of the miracle. Now understand this, that here's the confusion in the holy place, in the temple prior to Hanukkah, there was a seven-branched menorah or uh, candelabra. And that light, God said, was to, be- to burn continuously. And that light was to you know, look at one of God's attributes. God is truth, God is love, God is light. So that light was always supposed to be burning in the holy place. Um, after Hanukkah, they pretty much replaced Uh, with with the celebration, the nine branch versus the seven branch, but the seven branch was supposed to be in in the holy place. Now, what's interesting to know is that Jesus is the light of the world. And in all these festivals, Passover, Purim, these are all biblical festivals and feasts, but Hanukkah was not really biblical, it was more historical. It came much later, and it wasn't necessarily through God that it, it came about, but the Jews celebrated it. But Jesus is the light of the world. So whether we're looking at the the seven-branched candelabra or the nine-branched candelabra or any of these feasts and festivals that we've gone through, light was a central theme. And here Jesus is walking through into the temple teaching. He was that light that lit up the temple in a spiritual sense. He embodied that light. 24. Then the Jews, meaning the Jewish leadership, surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plain, plainly. Or how long do you keep us in suspense? Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. So he did these miracles for three years, and they're asking really a silly question How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Well, did you see what was right under your nose? You know, you know you saw this because they even criticized him for doing miracles on their Sabbath. What kind of question is that? Well, they didn't want to see the obvious. And I would just say that 2,000 years later, let us all be careful of not missing the obvious. Sometimes God gives us an answer. Sometimes God is doing a work, but we want another answer. And there's something about... Christians that, you know, we we get so excited when we come to the Lord and we're new believers, but sometimes, in some believers, over the years, they get a little stale. And they they start to miss what the obvious of what God is showing them. And I'm going to go into sovereignty a little later on. In verse 25, Jesus says, I told you and you don't believe. Now, if you follow Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, uh, any of these prophets of God in the Old Testament... Oftentimes, God would speak through the prophets and say, I told you, I'm warning you, trust me on this one, it's coming. And they didn't believe. And this is a place, hopefully, that we don't get to. And the truth is, if we've been a believer long enough, sometimes we end up in that place, where God is making it very plain to us, but we don't want to believe it for whatever reason. The religious leaders wanted a political Economic Messiah. They didn't want a spiritual Messiah. They wanted a Messiah that was going to deliver them from Rome. And again, is it any different today? What does the world say? Well, we want another God. We want a God that lets us get to heaven any way we want. Imagine that. God is letting us know how we can have a relationship with Him, and we're telling Him the terms of the relationship. It should be the other way around. You know, we want a God who doesn't ask us to change. And there are some churches that reflect that. They won't challenge you. They won't say anything offensive from the pulpit. They'll skip over scriptures like landmines because it doesn't fit with their doctrine. The truth is that we are to change, that God calls us to change. And it's a slow, gradual process. You know, he's a gentleman about it, but we need to change. They didn't want to believe in his miracles because they occurred on the Sabbath. It didn't fit with their lifestyle or their doctrine. In other words, God didn't do it the way I wanted. God didn't do it the way I expected. When we come to the cross, you know, somebody tells us about the Lord or we read the scripture and we become born again and we become new spiritual creatures, we come to the cross and one of the things we lay down at his feet is our sovereignty. Our sovereignty, our ability to be the master of our own destiny. I'm a self-made man. I used to say that. Anything I got was because of me. I did it. When I came to the cross, I had to take that self-directed life. I had to leave that sovereignty at his feet. So we trade our sovereignty for his sovereignty. But what is it about years and years go by where we get this attitude that we've arrived? And little by little, we say to the Lord, you know what? I want some of my sovereignty back. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, the question I need to ask you is, what is it that you've been wrestling with God about? What is it that you want sovereignty in your life, but he wants sovereignty in your life, and he's not going to wrestle with you? He'll let us have our way, as he did with the children of Israel. And then we'll fall, and we'll stumble, and we'll make our own problems. But this morning, let me tell you something. In this area, this is New Jersey. There's a lot of people with control issues, okay? (laughs) I mean, come on. This is, this is different if, if I was preaching in Tennessee somewhere. we got to lay it down at his feet. we got to give up our sovereignty because he'll let us have our way. He'll let us run our own lives. And you know what? It won't be a spirit-filled life. 25. He says, the works I do in the Father's name, they bear witness. In other words, how do you explain seeing the lame walk, the blind see, the dead raised? These were also fulfilled in Scripture. But you do not believe, he said, because you're not my sheep. You know, we run into, you know, I have friends that, that don't know the Lord, and I've been maybe friends with them for decades. And, you know, they'll, we'll have discussions, and they'll say, listen, I can't argue with you, but I'm not ready yet. Okay. And we just keep praying for those friends. We kept, keep praying that they do become one of his sheep, that the veil is lifted from their eyes, and they see things the way God showed us in a whole spiritual light. 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So Jesus goes back to this concept, this understanding of the good shepherd with his sheep, and the sheep hear his voice. However, he was speaking to the religious leaders, and he was saying, you're not one of my sheep. Imagine that, religious leaders not saved. Is it any different today? Powerful scripture we read uh, two Sundays ago, Matthew 7:21 through 23. Many will come saying, we did these things in your name, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, you workers of iniquity and lawlessness. I never knew you frightening. But what does that tell you? It tells you, it tells me that we're not to rely on a man or a woman or an organization or a doctrine or a denomination. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. I have a purpose here, but I'm not here for your salvation. I'm facilitating you getting to know the Lord, introducing you to him, And also to help you to grow in Christ and mature. And to be inoculated against false doctrine that's out there. But I'm not the way to your salvation. It is the Lord Jesus. No priest, no pope, no rabbi, no pastor. It's Jesus alone. So two Sundays ago we spoke about Jesus saying, the sheep hear my voice. And the more we understand his voice, the more we'll be inoculated against things that are not of him. I, I, I talked to you about, uh, we did a few you know, voice recognition examples. Uh, we talked about how even animals can understand a human's voice, voice patterns. And even if the animal can't see, they'll follow that voice and run to their master or they'll run to their shepherd. And we even spoke about on Christian radio, I talked to you about an ad uh, that was un- completely unbiblical. I asked you, what do you think of it? Is that Christian? You, you, there's a lot of groans. You might look on Christian television, TBN, some call it the blasphemy network. You know, I mean, there are some things on that show that are completely ungodly, but there's a cross, but there's pl- pretty flowers, there's a pulpit. See, this is where things get tough at, in, the, in the age that we live in. The age that we live in, the Bible tells us there's going to be more and more apostasy there's going to be more and more falling away, false teaching. So you will say, well, it almost sounds like his voice. And, and some of you have come to me, and I saw this on TV. or heard this teacher, and it, it sounded mostly good, but there was something that tweaked me. There was something in my spirit that said to me, this isn't of God. Satan will use 98% truth and only 2% of falsity to vary in percentages, and it poisons the whole well. have to be careful of that. Verse 28 tells us of the benefits of a relationship with the Lord, being his faithful sheep, reminiscent of Isaiah 43 in the Old Testament. Three promises. Number one, he gives us eternal life. Heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven, right? We want to go to that great place. The more we struggle in this life, the more we look forward to that place. Jesus says, amen, right? That's his promise, right? The first promise. There's many of them. But I'm just going to cover the three here in this passage. Two, he says that they will never be they will never perish my sheep. They will never be destroyed. See, when we believe, the Bible tells us that judgment passes over us. Right? The the Passover was a type of that blood of Christ. They put the the Jews put the blood on the, you know, the lintels, the doorpost and and you know, the judgment would pass over them because they believed, they had faith. Right. In, in and that, in that shed blood of that lamb, which was a type of Jesus Christ. The other thing is we will not be destroyed, we will not perish. You know, how long is it, Pastor Joe, that we'll be in eternity where God kind of gets bored with us? See, we see things through you know, reality glasses in, in the temporal state. The Lord is not an unfaithful spouse. That after so many years of marriage, he or she decides, I don't want to be married anymore. I don't love you. That's so painful. And they walk off. They leave that person rejected, dejected, depressed. That's not God. Eons and eons and thousands and millions and millions of years. It doesn't matter. He's always going to love us. Right? So We have to understand he's not. It's not a human relationship. It's a divine relationship. And third promise. He says no one can snatch them out of my hand and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So that means that we are secure from outside forces. When the sheep get into the pen, the good shepherd is the door. Jesus is the door. We covered that. And the pen is, is secure and safe from outside forces that would try to steal the sheep. So we are secure. Right? Well, if we decide to wander and do things like that, there's an issue of the will. But the fact is that Satan, any other force, cannot steal our salvation. He cannot snatch us out of the hands of God. A loving God. Now that word in verse 29, to snatch or to pluck, is the Greek word harpazo. Sound familiar? It's where we get the word rapture. So no one can s- steal us from him, but there will be a point in time when we read the book of Revelation that God's judgment will come down on an unfaithful, rebellious, and wicked earth as it has in times past. We just don't remember it because it was a long time ago. And what will God do? He'll snatch us from the world in the rapture. He'll take us out of here because he's not going to destroy the love of his life with the wicked. He never has done that. That's not his MO. So that's a, a curious point there. Now, we can be promised a lot of things. You know, you could lend somebody a hundred bucks and they could promise you by next week, they'll give you a hundred bucks. You know, you could agree with someone to come and take you to the doctor's office and the day comes and they don't take you to the doctor's office. We live in a world with unfaithful people, but check this out. These are three promises that God makes to us, the living God, the eternal God, the creator of all things. And sometimes we whine about our situation, but you know, I want to encourage you with these promises because these are, you know, this is a deal you can't get anywhere. I mean, this is just dynamite, but a believer never needs to fear what happens after death as these promises ultimately refer to. And I believe that the more you understand the word of God, the more you grow in the word of God, the less we will fear. Right? We don't fear. And when we do fear, the, again, the more we have that relationship with him, the more you, you say to yourself, years go by and say, you know what, I don't, I don't feel that way anymore because I have a better understanding of who he is and his love for me. This morning, would you like that security? If you don't know the Lord, if you came here and you don't really understand a relationship with God, would you like that security? Would you like that peace that surpasses all understanding? Would you like a retirement plan that's literally out of this world? You know? It's available to you. How do I do that, Pastor Joe? Well, right now, as you're listening to the word, and it's moving you, and it's doing something inside of you, you're you're getting to understand his voice. You're getting trained on the shepherd's voice. Just say yes to him. Verse 30. I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him again. This has happened before. Jesus answered them, Many good works which I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. All right. This is the point where we're going to talk about the nature of God. So it's, you know, this is going to put a lot of stuff in here so we really can get that understanding. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Can we say that? Well, not on my best day. I mean, one... And and we'll talk about that. There's a lot of confusion about this. You see, there's two groups out there that are really uh, involved in some teachings even as we speak. One is the Arians, and the other one are the modalists, and I'll I'll discuss that. We talked a lot about this in the John 1 study. The modalist is a person that believes Jesus is sometimes the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's other things. So it's really not a three-in-one as as the Bible teaches us, but when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was actually, when he was speaking to the Father, there was nobody up there to listen to him. There was nobody in the throne. He actually was speaking to himself, and then it makes the Bible not mean what it really means. Now, Christian bookstores carry books by T.D. Jakes, and a lot of his books he wrote while he was in modalism. So some of his teachings are going to be off. Now, he's, he's walked back a little bit from that modalist mentality, but you know, you can be reading a popular Christian book and it could be teaching you something that's unscriptural. Uh, Arians, okay, Uh, and it's not the World War II, you know, purebred race type of Arians, but it comes from Arius, the teacher. Now, Arians teach that the Father is Almighty God and Jesus is a lesser God. So Jesus is kind of a, a little God. And that has made its way into Jehovah Witness teachings. Both of these teachings make Jesus a mythological shapeshifter. So, in other words, he can be an angel one day, archangel Michael. He can be a lesser god the other day. He can be a man. He could be the Father. He could be the Son. That's that's mythology. That has no place in in biblical scripture. Here's the truth: the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. So it's a little hard to understand the concept, but this is the way God reveals himself. Now, it's not too hard when we understand that he has made us three in one, in a sense. We're spirit, the part of us that's eternal, we're flesh, and we're mind. I gotta tell you, my spirit is not my flesh. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells me, and I've experienced this way too often and still will, that my flesh wars against my spirit. So we're kinda together in this package But we're really not, when somebody dies, there's a separation of those three. So it's really not that hard to understand when we look at God's signature in the human being. Another uh, example is that in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, that Jewish people, they put in their mezuzahs on the side of their doors. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God is one God. That word in the Hebrew is echad, which means a united one. Whereas, Moses didn't use Yahid, which is a different Hebrew word, which means solitary one. So even way back in the Old Testament, when you're trying to encourage your Jewish friends, you can say, this is Echad in the Hebrew, which there's other words for one, but this one specifically means a united one. Now, the argument's been made to me, well, Pastor Joe, you know, the Greeks or the, um, the Egyptians had their three gods, the Babylonians had their three gods, the so-called Trinity. So I can't bring myself to believe in a Trinity because that was uh, em- emblematic in paganism. And I would say this to you: that Satan is the great counterfeit. Whatever God did, you know wh- what came first? God revealing Himself, and then Satan looked at him that and he tried to emulate that. So if you have a counterfeit, if you have counterfeit money, what is it counterfeiting? The original. You need an original to have a counterfeit. Bible, the Bible tells us that Satan is the counterfeit. Therefore, he's counterfeiting off of the original, which is God. Blasphemy, in verse 31, has been, is punishable by stoning in the Jewish law. Now, at this point in history, Rome took away the Jews' right to capital punishment. So if the stoners really wanted to stone Jesus, they had to think about this because the Roman authorities could have come and killed them for stoning somebody without going through the Roman court systems. So what does this tell us? That these Jewish leaders were sure, that they were sure, that they were sure that Jesus was making himself out to be God. Now, when somebody knocks on your door, doot, 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 on a Saturday morning, and they say, hey, we're Christians too, and they come in and they say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. They they, they have to completely eliminate the Gospel of John To make that statement. The more we go through the Gospel of John, we see it's all over this book. 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Now this almost makes it more confusing, and I love that, because the more you really study the word, the more it really pops, the more it really comes out in a great way. But we have to meditate on it. We can't read the Bible in one day and say, I know everything about there is about the mysteries of God. He slowly reveals them to us as we grow, like a a baby who goes from milk to solid food when when their teeth grow and their digestive enzymes get stronger. So this has led to Mormon doctrine that teaches Brigham Young, the second president of of the Mormons, as a spouse, the Adam-God theory. In other words, they believe that our God that we serve now used to be a man. And it was Adam who was elevated to godhood. Now, some will come to your door and say, no, no, we don't believe that. Oh, yes, they do. You can easily find Brigham Young's writing. You can find it in the uh, prophets and presidents' writings. You can find it in the Mormon gospel principles. So in other words, man or we can become gods if we're good Mormons. Uh, And our God actually used to be a man. And it's this eternal progression of godhood. And they point to the scripture. But we're going to flesh this out so we can make sure that we understand that's not what Jesus is saying here. Let me also be clear, this isn't a referendum. This is just where we are in the scripture. This isn't a referendum on the upcoming presidential elections because both candidates have their spiritual issues and it's clear that Jesus isn't on the ballot. So, So let's just make that clear. But this is what we have. This is the way the deity of Christ can be attacked by pseudo-teachings. Number one, what does the Jehovah Witnesses do? They take Jesus, they remove his deity, and just make him a mere man, attacking his deity. What do the Mormons do? Very clever. They leave Jesus up here in his godhood, but they take us and they elevate us to his position so that we're equal. What does that do? It, it, it takes Jesus off his pedestal. So both teachings do it in a different way. Okay. So let's start with this the genetic word or the generic word gods in the Hebrew. That word is Elohim and that word is contextual. It can also mean angels depending on how it's used. It can be made to be used as magistrates and it can be used as judges. In Exodus 7:1, God said to Moses, check this out. 7:1, right? Exodus 7:1, God says to Moses, I have made you Elohim to Pharaoh. Whoa, yeah, it it says when it's translated into English, it's it's contextual, but he uses the word Elohim. Did he literally mean that he made Moses a God? No, he didn't. I think at this point, I have to digress because Moses was a representative of God. Now, this is powerful. So God is saying, he says to Moses, to the children of Israel, he's also said, I've made you Elohim. What does he say? Moses, I'm gonna talk to you. Moses, you're going to understand me. Moses, you have the law. Moses, you're going to go to my people, and to them, you're going to be God. Of course, he didn't make him God in his essence. give you another example. When a child is born, a baby, they have very limited understanding of the things of God. As they grow and their minds mature, it makes more sense over time. But to a child, to a baby, mom is God. They get their milk from mom. They get their love from mom. But when that little baby grows up, they understand that there is a God and mom's not God. Because what do our children see in us? Sometimes hypocrisy, right? Sometimes things that they realize, well, there's got to be more to this, right? So what's really neat too is that Moses had the ability to execute, you know, or use capital punishment. So in a sense, God gave Moses the ability of a God, right? Doesn't mean Moses is God. Let me just say this too, that Moses, when he was in the desert and he struck the rock the first time, he said to Moses, speak to the rock. And that was a picture of Jesus. Now, when Moses took that rod because he was mad at the people and he whacked that that rock and he probably was angry, God said to Moses, you misrepresented me. I made you Elohim. You made them think I'm a hateful, vengeful God and I'm just really fed up with my people. And that was not the case. Therefore, you shall not enter the promised land. So I want to say this to to Christians. We are representatives of God. The Bible says we're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So when we go out into the world, when we go out into our workplace, listen, this is a tall order. It was a tall order for Moses. It's a tall order for me. I'm not always on my game. And when I'm not, I keep my mouth shut because I'm not really being a good witness at that moment. But check this out. To represent God. You're looking for purpose in your life. Even Christians who've been Christians for a while and they're complaining about their lives. Are you really representing God? Are you really going out there with purpose and destiny and meaning? If not, maybe you need to pray to God and say, Lord, what is it you'll have me to do? I'm ready to leave my sovereignty back at the cross and exchange it for yours again. So check that out. Let's go into this. Psalm 82, if you would turn to me, turn with me. Turn to me also, in the Old Testament, Psalm 82. There's only eight verses. It's a psalm of Asaph. It's the rebuke of Israel's unjust judges. It says that God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said you are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High, but... You shall die like men. See, this is context is everything in the scripture. Oh, they said that we could be gods. Yeah, well, how do you like the part about dying like men? That's not really a great, you know, read the rest of it. So if you were really a god, you couldn't die like a man. Now, could you? And fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nation. In a nutshell, in this psalm, God is holding high court among the leaders of his people. They weren't doing their job. They weren't helping the poor. They were taking from the poor. They weren't helping the widows. They were ignoring the widows. They weren't meeting out justice. They were giving justice to those who were wealthy and had some you know, clout in that society. And God was angry about that. And he said, if you're representing me, you're doing a horrible job. And I'm going to deal with you. So that's what this, this psalm is about. And he does deal with those false shepherds, those false leaders. So what does God say? I have made you gods, but you will die like men. And if if we were to be an eternal progression of gods, and we were using this scripture as our proof text, then we're going to die like men, and we'd be back to the same state we are now. Well, what is there behind death? What is there beyond that? Okay, So it becomes confusing. So here's the absolute genius in what Jesus was doing. Number one, he said, if men can be called Elohim, or gods, then certainly you can call the Son of God, God. Using logic here too, he parallels uh, Psalm 82's corrupt leaders with the religious leaders he was speaking to at the time, many centuries later, and he's saying, "This is you." Lastly, as God judged the leaders in Psalm 82, he's basically saying, "As God, I'm going to judge you." You wonder why they tried to stone him to death, all right? Just think of how well that went over. In other words, this is fulfilled in as much as God, Big G has come down to judge the God's little g. Simple as that. Now in verse 38, Jesus says this. He says, You may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. This is known in theology as mutual co-inherence. Right? The Son is in the Father, the Father is in the Son. The Greek uh, word is en, and literally means to be in. Could I say that? No. Absolutely not. I can't say that. In the dispensation of grace, we know that the Holy Spirit indwells us. Well, that's really neat. That a part of God, when you become saved, he's there. He's with you, he's in you, he's upon you, he's para, he's epi, he's en, all those Greek uh, prepositions. Uh, So, we have the Holy Spirit. But... Is there any benefit of mutual coherence with a sinful human and God? Of course not. I benefit greatly, let me tell you something, from the Holy Spirit indwelling me. However, would God benefit at all from a sinful person like myself being in him? Absolutely not. There's no way. Not, not going to happen. So what this does is it lends more credibility to the deity of Christ. Because right? you're, you're all going to come into this. Someone's going to ask you, did Jesus really claim to be God? Well, you can't really believe that. Well, he says it all over his scripture. So I benefit immensely from the Holy Spirit, but God or Jesus or Holy Spirit wouldn't benefit from me being in them. However, in Jesus's case, there is a mutual coherence. Verse 39. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, meaning John the Baptist, but all the things that John spoke about this man, meaning Jesus, were true. And many believed in him there. You can look at this as maybe a tactical retreat. (laughs) You know, he's going to spend some time away from Jerusalem. He's going to be in prayer. He's going to be with his disciples. He's going to shore them up again. And then, you know, in the last week, he's going to be back in Jerusalem Uh, And, of course, the crucifixion is going to take place. But imagine Jesus dealing with hard hearts day after day after day. And you may ask yourself, well, why did he bother? Because we may get mad at the Pharisees and the religious leaders. We may be annoyed with their hypocrisy, but he actually loved them. And some of them came to faith later on. So it wasn't that he was arguing for the sake of arguing. He was arguing for the sake of love. And he just was explaining it to them. Arguing probably is not a good word. What's really neat is long after the death of John the Baptist, the work of the Lord continued to bear fruit. And this is encouraging. Galatians 6.9 tells us that, it says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Amen. When you tend to be discouraged, I would ask you to go to the info counter and get the Voice of the Martyrs periodically, periodical and look through it. Because you see believers who are really filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a lot of widows in uh, South America uh, because their their husbands were killed by the guerrillas there, the, the communist guerrillas. Uh, there's a lot of widows in Indonesia, you know, because their husbands' pastors were martyred. And the testimony of these women and the children will just blow your doors off. The encouragement that God brings to them because they were doing the Lord's will. Here's John the Baptist he's doing God's will, he gets arrested, he's going to jail, he's languishing in a filthy prison, and then they take him out only to chop his head off. And he asked his disciples, go to Jesus and say, are you the one or should we look for another one? He was getting discouraged. Out of all those born among women, Jesus said, John John was the greatest, and here's a guy who was discouraged. So it's going to happen to us too. But these things should encourage us because even though John might not have seen a whole, not, a whole lot of fruit in his life after his death, everything blossomed. So that's, that's uh, very encouraging. What does this boil down to as we close this? That the true sheep hear the voice of the good shepherd. How many of you uh, are familiar with Kermit the Frog? Raise your hand. Wow, a lot of Kermit the Frog fans. How many of you still watch The Muppets? No, you don't have to raise your hand. I think I do a mean Kermit the Frog. This is Kermit the Frog here, coming to you from Muppet News. Pretty good, huh? <laughs> my wife wonders, why does he do the things that he does? <laughs> well, the other day, I, my dog likes to jump on the bed, and I tell her, get off the bed, go to your crate, you know. So she was on the bed, and for whatever reason, I decided to do my Kermit the Frog impersonation and tell her what she needed to do. She normally listens to me. And you ever see a dog do that? And she never did this before. She cocked her head, and her ears went up. And I could see her saying, I know that's him. His lips are moving, but that is not his voice. (laughs) Two Sundays ago, we did another demonstration about voice recognition, if you were here for that. And the truth is that we understand each other. When the phone rings, if it's somebody very close to you, you immediately know the voice on the phone, even through the phone lines. So voice recognition is very important. And it's very important when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. And you may say, but so Pastor Joe, should I sit in my room and get everybody out of the house and make it real quiet? I'm going to hear his literal voice. His voice has been recorded in his word. When he spoke, there were biographers there, his disciples, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who wrote everything he said down, or most of what he said. And when we are attuned to his voice, really what it is, is we understand his word. So if somebody throws some weird doctrine your way, you're going to say, no, that's not his voice. I don't recognize that. That's not the Lord Jesus that I know. You know, I've, I've read the apocryphal books and I've read the Gospel of Thomas and, you know, Jesus was a boy and he killed two kids. And I'm like, that's not Jesus. That's ridiculous. So you could read all those apocryphal books and there'll be obvious counterfeits. Do we know the voice of our Lord? Because we need to distinguish between the true and the counterfeit too. The true sheep respond and follow him. This is important. The Bible tells us not just to be hearers, but doers to act on what we read, to act on hearing his voice. Because the Bible tells us two Sundays ago that the sheep go in and out. They go into the pen for safety. They go out to munch on the grass. They find pasture. You know, we munch on his word. That sustains us spiritually. So the sheep have a relationship with their shepherd. And three, the true sheep believe the benefits that the good shepherd offers. Why? Because it's backed by something. That's why Jesus really opens up about his deity. Here's the backing of what I say. Watch, I'm going to be crucified, and that's not the end of it. I'm going to rise again. And then you'll know that everything I said was true because no one's ever done that before because of my deity. No one takes my life. I give it freely, and I have the power to take it up again. We read that. So he offers this eternal security, this peace, this absence of fear, and a lot of these things are are able able to use them while we're here before we even pass away. So, the only question left is, are you one of his sheep? And do you want to be? Well, you can be. Hear his voice, act on it, continue to follow the voice of your good shepherd, and you can be one of his sheep. It's your choice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you once again for walking us through your word. We, we, we can almost maybe put ourselves in the shoes of the people listening. And